0: have a Bible uh, open to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Uh, again, we're continuing to work through in our series on Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus has done kind of leading up to our section this morning, we're going to be in verses 9 through 13 in what's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. Um, it's a prayer that Jesus gives actually to his followers. Um, but, and what Jesus has done is he's, he's talked through, um, okay, when you, when you pray, in fact, he's starting in verse 5, he's, he says that in verse 5, when you pray, verse 6, he says when you pray, verse 7, when you pray, and what he is leading up to is saying look, when you pray, mean it. Uh, Don't don't be a hypocrite. In other words, in your life, don't cultivate a love of being seen by others or don't cultivate a love uh, of the approval of men or the praises of men. What Jesus is ultimately getting at as he leads into this Lord's Prayer is remember the relationship is real. So you be real, be authentic, don't be fake. And that leads us to verse 9. Let's read through this together. Pray then like this. Let's pray and ask God to help us with this this morning. Father God, we love you, and God, we just thank you for another moment where we can gather together and God, sing and say true things about you, and now God, open your word, and and God, your word is power, your word is life, God, your word is able to do a type of heart surgery on us, God, where it rightly divides, God, that which should not be uh, there, and God, at the same time inserts that which we need for uh, living and for our greatest joy. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do what only you can do, and that is to bring a transformation in this moment. I pray for a covering over me. God, I pray that I would be decreasing and decreasing, that you would be increasing and increasing at this time. God, uh, the whole point of this is to make much of you. Jesus, it's your fame, it's your name, it's your renown. We want to see high and we want to see you lifted up. It's only and always about you and it's in your name we pray. Amen. This prayer that Jesus leads his followers in, it it leads us in and it shapes our understanding of God. It also has a way of leading in and shaping our understanding of us. There's five Words or five kind of themes that we're going to pull out of this prayer. And we're going to essentially work through these five themes this morning. The five themes or the five words in this prayer are father, kingdom, supply and provision. I realize those are two words. Forgiveness, and then protection or or leading. Now, these themes would have been really familiar to the audience. But Jesus takes these very familiar themes and he's going to teach something truly radical about them. Prayer is so important for us because what prayer does is it sets and shapes our perspective in the right place. It, it sets our life and our focus so that we can live like God is in control and so that we can submit to that. And maybe sometimes that's what makes prayer kind of difficult for us is because it puts us in our rightful place. It puts us in the place where we realize we are not in control and that we are to lay our lives down. But it should serve also as a reminder of how God has laid his life down to save ours. But in this prayer here, Jesus is not just simply teaching us how to pray. He's teaching us how to order our lives. He's not simply giving us words to say that we would just repeat after him. He makes it pretty clear. He doesn't want it just to be this meaningless kind of mechanical repetition. He's giving us transferable principles that we should employ in order to strengthen our relationship with him. And we're going to work through these kind of five themes, but we're actually, and I hope I'm not breaking any kind of preaching rule, but we're actually going to work through them backwards. We're going to start at the end of the prayer and kind of work our way back up. So in verse 13, verse 13 is this, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Jesus presents this theme or the truth of leading or protection. Now, this audience, primarily the Jewish audience, would have been very familiar with the leading and the protection of God. They would have remembered God's protection or God's leading them out of captivity from the Egyptians. They would have remembered the leading and the protection through the wilderness, leading through times of war, leading through times of prosperity. But here Jesus takes the reality and and he creates the freedom of how God leads us in through and delivers us through our battle with evil and sin and how God provides a way of escape. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says this, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And when God is faithful and God is faithful, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, temptation is a solicitation of our passions. It's a, an enticement to evil. And it comes from the prospect or the false promise of pleasure or advantage. And being tempted is not a sin. Jesus himself was tempted. But it's what we do when we are tempted. It's when the whisper of temptation then becomes the loudest voice, the loudest leading voice in our life. It reminds me of the story. there's a woman in Florida, who had a pet boa constrictor, because people in Florida were crazy. We have large reptiles as pets. And she had an extremely large boa constrictor. And one day, the police were called to her home, and when they walked in, they found her dead on her kitchen floor. There was a a knife in her hand, and there was blood everywhere. As they inspected the the room, they saw there were no puncture wounds on her, but they followed the trail of blood into the other room. And it's there that they found this giant snake that she had, this boa constrictor. As they kind of put the scene back together, what had happened is she was there uh, kind of chopping vegetables for dinner, and she had allowed her pet snake to start to kind of curl around her feet. And it started at her feet and it started to work its way up her legs and curl around her legs. And then it got to her waist and started to curl around her waist. And then it got to her kind of midsection. And then she knew she was in trouble and it curled up even further. And she began to then take her knife and stab the snake to try to save herself. But it was too late. The snake constricted and killed her. I don't know if that story is true. But I remember when I heard it, I was like, "That's a really <laughs> that story really fits. Because it's exactly... I know, there went the rest of my sermon. You won't listen to anything else I say because I just, I didn't make it up. I just, someone else did and I thought it was good. Um, but that's exactly what we do. That's exactly what we do. We allow whatever that, whatever that sin is, whatever that destructive attitude or behavior or, or thought pattern is, we just let it kind of hang around and hang around and hang around and it curls itself around us and we just thank God. Oh, it's just, it's just my pet we just keep it and it curls and curls and curls around until finally it takes us out and it's too late and Jesus is saying that God is our defense and our moment of temptation and he's there in our prayer for help and our strength is found in surrendering to the leading of God it's that prayer of God something is fighting for my heart right now something is trying to rob my joy And this prayer reminds us of what we have as children of God. And this prayer stirs up an affection for God and it expels the desire for false and destructive things. Next, Jesus turns to this idea of forgiveness and he kind of turns it upside down for us. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts. What are our debts? He's not talking about financial debts, although we all, most of us, can relate to that, um, and that debt w- w- makes us feel trapped. That we feel pressure. And and that's a debt that we can repay, but the Bible tells us that there's another debt. It tells us that we all have sinned, we've all offended a holy God, and our debt is our life. Death is is the payment. We see that in Romans 3 and Romans 6. And so we wrestle with, is there anything that can wash away that guilt or that shame? Is there anything that can wash away my sin? Is there anything that can wash away that debt? And regardless if you're religious or not, you're a Bible person or a church person or not, you've wrestled with that question and, and you've thought about what you have done and, and you think, okay, well, going forward, I just won't do what I did anymore. But even if you don't ever do that anymore, you still can't go back and make up for the past. Now, every faith system has an answer for this. Every faith teaching, every religion, every book offers a solution to that dilemma. And you probably know that because you've probably researched it or maybe even tried it. In fact, that might be even why you're here today because you're hoping that Christianity is one of those things that can kind of deal with that sense of debt that you feel. And every religious system offers a solution, but there's only ever been one person who offers himself as the solution, In the recorded history of mankind, there's only been one person who stepped forward and said, I do not simply have a solution, I am the solution. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 15, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over them by the cross. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal, legal indebtedness. You see, your sin created a debt. That's why you feel like you have to get rid of that shadow. That's why you feel like you always have that cloud over you, because it's real. But in the gospel, Jesus Christ has canceled our debt, which stood against us and condemned us, and he has taken it away. He picked it up and carried it off. He lifted it up and took it away because it had been nailed to the cross. But what about all the memories? What about all the things that I think about in the past that I've done wrong? That's actually the easy part, because when those moments come up, in the, in the past, you would think about failure, and you would think about your guilt, and you would think about how condemned you are, but under the grace of God, under the unmerited and unearned favor of God, those things now become memorials of God's love, forgiveness, and of His sacrifice, and of His grace. Now, those things that you think about in the past, they're not reminders of your failure. They're not reminders of your, of, of your sin. They are reminders of how much you have been forgiven, That's why it's so important for us as followers of Jesus to pray, forgive us our debts because it's a constant reminder of how much we have been forgiven in Christ Jesus and his finished work at the cross. And we need to, church, be preaching that good news to ourselves. Now we love that truth. We set that side apart. We love that truth. But the next part is really difficult because the next part confronts us with our forgiveness of others. And that's where we start to shut down. Paul, to the in Colossians verse three, chapter 3, verse 13, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, how did the Lord forgive you? Completely? Supremely? Extravagantly? Cory Tim Boone says this God casts our offenses into the deepest chasm in the deepest ocean and puts up a no fishing sign. And it's not that God has amnesia, he chooses not to treat us as our sins deserve because of the work of his son Jesus, who is our advocate. Jesus teaches, and if, and if, you've, if you miss this, but he teaches earlier in the sermon on how to treat our enemies and those who, those who offend us. And here he takes this value of forgiveness in the kingdom of God and again just completely turns us upside down with it. Next in verse 11, Jesus uses the very familiar theme of provision or supply. Now, again, to this audience, an extremely relevant idea. When we think about provision, especially food, we probably think more about what we shouldn't be eating than whether or not we're actually going to get to eat. But that wasn't the reality for this audience here, and it isn't the reality for most of the world, frankly. Um, And so they would have been really dialed in when Jesus was talking about, give us today our daily bread. And they also would have thought back to their history. They would have remembered the manna or the bread from heaven. They would have remembered provision in the desert. And they would have remembered the faithfulness of Yahweh. And what Jesus teaches here is that God knows what you need and he's able to supply immeasurably more for every need that you have. In verse 10, he takes this idea of kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He takes this idea of kingdom and in, in, in that culture and in ours as well, he confronts this idol of, of the day. You see, these people were obsessed with power and they were, they were obsessed with a new kingdom that would come in and that would include a position of power for them. But, but Jesus is not talking about earthly kingdoms. He's talking about the kingdom of God. And, and there are these overlapping kingdoms. You'll, you'll hear us talk about it from time to time, about the, the already and not yet, the kingdom of God that has come but is not yet fully realized. And then there is the very real uh, kingdom of this world that we bump up against all the time. It, it's kind of like when you go to the movies, before you see the feature presentation, there are trailers, right? There are previews, all right? So there's a, a minute or 90 seconds of the movie that, that, that's coming. Now, if you watch the trailer or you watch the preview to a movie, have you seen the movie? No, but you've seen glimpses of it. And so these overlapping kingdoms work in very much the same way. There's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this world. But what Jesus is teaching us in verse 10 is that we need to understand that it's not about us. It's not about our own kingdom. We, we have on a giant banner out there, all of life is all for Jesus. That's like, the, if you just yell out Jesus in a church service, you're going to get it right most of the time anyway, so... With confidence, you can yell that out. Right, all of life is all for Jesus. All of life is not all about us. The story is all about him. We're written into the story, but we are not writing our story. There are no I's or me's in this prayer. And and the focus of my prayer is not about me, because Jesus has taught me that there is something greater, and it's the kingdom of God, it's the glory of God, the fame and the renown of God, the person of Jesus Christ. That's the focus of my life life as a follower of Jesus. And so that's the focus of my praying life. Jesus is teaching, look, don't get caught up in the power of this kingdom because there is an enduring, the Bible says, an unshakable kingdom that is coming. And we want the reality of the coming kingdom to infiltrate and to inform our present reality. It's his kingdom, not our will. It's his And what this does is it shapes and it affects our area on earth. In your world, in your space on earth, you're praying for the kingdom to come. You're praying for God's will to be done wherever God has put you. And what this prayer does is it reminds us of and it mobilizes us in the role as an agent of change, a force for good in the space that God has put you. So often when people come to church, uh, this week, no doubt, you've bumped up against things that are broken, you, there are hurts in this world, uh, there sin in this world, at the very least, if you just saw the news on the internet or watched news on TV, but in your own life as well too, you, you bump up against those things. And you come here on a Sunday and you sit in, in, your, in your chair and you look up at whoever's on the stage and you say, what are you going to do about this broken world? And what this prayer teaches us is that we all need to be asking, what does God have for me to do in my world, in my sphere, in my space on earth that God has put me? What does God have for me to do to effect change, to be a force for good? In Deuteronomy chapter 4, the people of God are about to enter the promised land. Moses couldn't go, but he says to them, he says, look, take possession, occupy the place where God is leading you. Don't be a bystander in life. Uh, You are an agent for change. Not an agent for change for what you want, but an agent for change for the will of of God. When the the Occupy Wall Street movement was kind of happening, there was a a pastor in New York City who said, we're not just going to occupy Wall Street, we're going to occupy all streets. And I love that because that's exactly what I think God is calling his people to do, to occupy the space where God puts you. And listen, we occupy space with whatever occupies us. Do do you understand that? When Christ takes up space in our lives, we start taking up Christ in the space that he has put us. When Christ is filling up our lives, we fill the space with where God has us with Christ. We occupy for the kingdom of God. Okay, well, what does that look like? Well, I think it starts with prayer. So during the week, on a normal week, I realize some of us were in fall break, but how many of you, uh, every day of the week, you, you go to work or you go to school, right? Okay, so we all have like a constant place that we go to all the time. Now, as you're going to those places, how many of you pray for the people at your school or that you work with? You know why? Because when we go to school or when we go to work or whenever we go to these places that we go to all the time, we're not thinking about God's kingdom. We're thinking about our own kingdom. We don't go to school. We don't go to work thinking, you know what? I might be the only person in this place who's praying for all the people in this place. That thought doesn't usually cross our minds. Where do you want to see the kingdom of God move in power? Do you want to see the kingdom of God move in power in your home? Do you want to see the kingdom of God move in power in your neighborhood, in your your marriage, in the life of your kids? Do you want to see the kingdom of God move in power in this city? Do you want to see the kingdom of God move in power in this state, in this nation, in our world? Jesus says, pray for it. Pray for it. How how many of you prayed for your, your church family this morning on the way to get here? I mean, I know you're, you're, you're busy yelling at your wife to get in the car and then you got to yell at your kids the whole way here. So I know there's not a whole lot of time, but how many of you, how many of you prayed for your church family this morning? Today, hundreds of volunteers will work with our kids and we'll share with them the good news of who Jesus is. How many of you prayed for those who are going to be working with your kids today? We have an incredible guest services team. Again, hundreds of volunteers who wake up super early in the morning to fill all the communion elements that we're going to have in a a moment. They open doors. They are handing out bulletins. They help you find your seat. Today they got umbrellas out because we believe that this sermon actually started in the parking lot. We also know that every Sunday is somebody's first Sunday, and we know that their interaction with Jesus happens at the very first handshake, the very first hello, the very first smile that they encounter. Did you pray for any of those people this morning? Did you pray for any of the people who are leading us in worship this morning? Do you ever think about the, the adversary and the attacks that are probably happening with them? Do you ever, feel about, do you ever think about how they had to wrestle with that? Do you thank God for them and the way that they use their talents and their skills and ability to lead us in and, and worship and praising God? Did you pray for them? Did you pray for anybody in the, in the tech booth? Did you pray for the, the guy running sound? I know you like to have conversations with him, but did you pray for him? Pray for the lighting guy, pray for uh, whoever's handing the pro presenter so that we can see the lyrics, so that we can all sing together. You see, prayer is not just us asking God to do something for us, it's where we hear from God what he has for us to do. So often we think of prayer as just a means to get something for God, and God provides to be sure, but prayer is a major way for us to get on the same page as God, to tune our hearts and live for him, for his purposes and his will. You see, God doesn't get on our page. He increases our joy by allowing us to get on his. Colossians 3.1, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. I don't think God put us here at 1820 West Elliott just so that we could all gather together and soak. And man wasn't a great 45 minutes, hour and 15 minutes this Sunday. God brings us together so that we would be reminded of his truth and so that we would scatter to the places that he has placed us and that we would herald and lift high the name of Jesus. Everything that Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, especially in this prayer, is that he's trying to shift us from the worldly kingdom that we're just absolutely saturated and consumed by to his kingdom. Jesus is inviting us to join him, to joyfully pursue him and his kingdom. And this prayer is all about us getting aligned with his kingdom purpose. And when you pray like this, you pray like Jesus prays, which is a lot better than the way that we usually pray. We, because so often when we start our day, how do we start our day? Alarm goes off, grab the phone, check an email, check in calendar. What do I have to do today? That is the first question that pops into our heads. What do I have to do today? What if we flipped it upside down? And what if, what if we incorporated this prayer into our lives? And the first thought that we had was, God, God who is in heaven, has something for me to do today. How would that change your perspective on, on the classes that you're taking? How would that change your perspective on, on, on work? How would that change your per- perspective on, on how you are going to interact with your spouse and with your kids and with your neighbors and, and you know you're in the drive line dropping off kids, which is the biggest test on Earth, right? Like, God, you have something for me to do today. How would that change your perspective? God, your kingdom. Would your kingdom come, and would your will be done, and would you allow me to be a part of that happening? Finally, in verse 9, Jesus takes the theme of father, and he teaches this unbelievable reality, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He, there's two ideas. One is kind of common there, so this idea of father or the other is not so common this idea of heaven, but what Jesus does there is he gives us this personal, close, near description of God, but in the next statement he tells us that he's also so massive. And this is so important because if God is just near and God is just personal, but he doesn't have any power, he's not massive, then then I have trouble... Trusting because I'm led to believe that he isn't able. But, but if, if he's just massive and just all-powerful, I have difficulty trusting because I believe he's not intimately acquainted with me. He, that he's too big to care. But God is personal. He's our father and he's majestic. He's the king of heaven. God's, Jesus says, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed. What, what does that mean? It, it could be read as holy is your name. Set apart. Set apart is your name. Sanctified is your name. And when we pray this, we come to the realization that we are stepping into a conversation with a name that is unlike any other name. That there is no one like our God. And when we gather together, church, on a Sunday like this, the the worship team is not here for our entertainment. They're not here just to, man, I hope they play my favorite song this Sunday. I hope they play it at my favorite volume this Sunday. They are here to remind us of the holiness of God, the set-apartness of God, that the God is higher, that God is lifted up. As a preacher, anybody who has the opportunity to come up here and share out of God's word, our job is not to give you a pep talk. Our, our job is not to give you uh, this funny instructional tip for your life. Our, our job is not to tell you stories that make you like us more. Our job is to simply remind you that God is God, that there is no other that He alone holds the highest name, and Jesus tells us when you pray, don't forget that. Remember that the name of God is hallowed. God is not your homeboy, He's not your bro, He's not the man upstairs. There is no name like the name of God. When we start our prayers, and we remember God is hallowed. It it forces us to start our prayers in the right posture. Because when we sense the hallowed be thy name, we, we, we stop because we're over at, overwhelmed at the reality or the realness of the set-apartness of God. In Psalm 33, verse 6 and 8, it says this, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. On, on Thursday night, I took my kids camping, and we were up on the, on the rim, and just, you know, when it gets dark, the sky is absolutely filled with stars, and I had uh, Evie, my oldest daughter, on my lap, and I just said, look at that. You know how those stars got here? By the very breath of God. Scripture says He called them out one one by name. There's, that's Alpha Centauri. That's the sun. Those are like the only two stars I know. But (laughs) there's like a billion of them, right? God did that. God breathed out the heavens. Verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. The NIV says, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Stand in awe of him. When's the last time you just did that? First, First Timothy 6.16 tells us that God, he dwells in unapproachable light. Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Fathom is a, a unit of measurement. That's how you measure the depth of something. So what the psalmist is saying, you can't measure the depth of the greatness of God. He's unmeasurable. He has all the power. There's nothing that he can't do. Nothing escapes his notice. Colossians tells us he holds the whole universe together. And Jesus is saying, look, if you want to pray correctly, you must first think correctly about God. He is your father. But he is holy and set apart and perfect as heaven. And Jesus is saying, when you pray, start grounded in that reality. I mean, do you ever think about that when you pray? Do you ever think about who you are coming before, who you are communing with, who you are speaking with, this all-knowing, omnipresent God? the God who knows our frame, the God who holds it all together. I think sometimes, especially when it comes to be small group time, we're more concerned about the people around us listening to our super great prayer than we are talking to the one we're supposed to be talking to. Why is all this so important? There's, there's one pastor who said it this way, and I think it's really great. He says, when there is no hallowed, our prayers are hollow." When there is no hallowed, our journey with God is hollow. When there is no hallowed, our worship is hollow. And so when you pray... Pray that the name of the one true God would be set apart in the world, that would be set apart in the nations. Pray that the name of God would be hallowed in your relationships, in your future hopes and dreams and plans, and your work, and your school, in your life. Pray that the name of God would be central in the place of your heart and your mind and your life. You see, when the world is all about you, it's impossible to hallow anybody else's name. When, the, when your name and your name alone are on the throne of your life, it's impossible to hallow the name of God. And we need to pray that in our hearts, his name is hallowed. The prayer starts with our Father. The set apart one, the sanctified one is our Father. There isn't an idea that's more massive than that. Jesus says, start by remembering that this is a relationship. It's a personal love affair with God Almighty. Remember that you are a son or a daughter of the heavenly set-apart one. When we start with, we, we start as children of the Most High God. I realize for some of us, this is really a hard concept because fatherhood is all jacked up. But God is restoring fatherhood. You see, in the, in the household of God, there is no fatherless generation because God is a perfect father. It's important to remind, to remind ourselves of this because so often we don't come to God as children. We come as these like random beggars and we hope that this cosmic telegraph that he gave us just gets the message through and, and we hope that maybe he'll hear us and maybe he'll come through for us. Look at verse eight in chapter six. He's talking about the people who kind of just pray with these mindless repetitions. Jesus says, he says, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Hello. All we know how to do is to go to God and ask. And usually that only happens when like everything's falling apart. And what Jesus is saying is, look, don't don't be like that. Your father knows what you need before you bring it. And that's what, that's how good parents are, right? Like, so good parents know what their kids need before their kids even come and ask for it. So if you got little ones during the summer, the kids are outside running and playing around, you already got the sippy cups going, right? Because you know, like, they're going to come in, mom, I'm thirsty, right? When they're in high school, you know when homecoming is going to happen, you know when prom is going to happen because somebody's going to be asking for the car, right? When they're in college, every time the phone rings, I know what this is about, right? Good parents, they know what their kids need before their kids even ask. And our father right now is working on what we really need, not what we think we need. And Jesus is saying, you need to come with that kind of confidence that your father is able. My my kids, every time we go through the checkout line at Target, Target is is so smart or sneaky, they put all the things that kids want, like the candy and the little toys and all the little waste of money, like right there at like kid eye level. And my kids have the confidence to ask me every time we go through the line, can we get this? Can we get this? Can we get this? Now, never once have any of my kids, six, five, and three, ever reached for their wallet to pay for it. (laughs) Not once, right? Right? Because they know dad can provide. I never do, which probably kills this illustration, but (laughs) I can. They've seen me pay for other things there before, right? But they know. So they come with confidence. And Jesus says, you can come with confidence when you start with Father, Romans chapter 8, verse 15 through 17, the Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs. What, what's that say? We are heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ. When Jesus starts the prayer with Father, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, look, the same way that I call him Father, you can call him Father. I guess that's only a big deal to me. The Son of God says, I call him Father, and he invites us, me and you, to say, when you pray, you too can call him Father. Thank you is right. You see, the, the words in, in, in this prayer, the words in this sermon, these, at least in my Bible, these words are in red, which means these are the very words of Jesus. The same Jesus who came from the heavenly kingdom into the broken kingdom. And one day, an earthly ruler would sentence this Jesus to die. These earthly soldiers would take him and beat him and spit on him and strip him naked and humiliate him and crucify him. And the whole time that he knew that the will of God, the plans of his father would not fail. And the worst day on earth turned out to be the best day in heaven because our father knew what we needed and he saw to it. He crucified his own son before you or I ever asked for forgiveness because your father knows what you need before you ask for it and you can trust him. And what this prayer teaches us, church, is that we can trust him for his leading and for his protection. We can, we can trust him for his forgiveness and so we can then forgive others. We can trust him in his provision and in his supply that is perfect for everything that we need We can trust his unshakable kingdom that is here and is coming and will one day be fully realized. And finally, we can trust him as perfect father who is in heaven, whose name is set apart. Let's pray. Father, you're in heaven. You're perfect in every way. Your name is hallowed, your name is set apart, and the highest honor is for your name. God, we pray that your kingdom would come, we pray for renewal, we pray for restoration. God, we pray that your will would be done, and God, we pray that you would recalibrate our perspective, that you would reorder our lives around that. God, we pray that it would be on earth as it is in heaven, God, that your rule and your reign would come in our lives and our world. God, we can confidently ask, God, that you would give us today our daily bread because you are provider, you are sustainer. God, we pray, forgive us our debts. We're reminded of your forgiveness over us, and God, would that transform our hearts and our minds, God, so that we would forgive those who are debtors. And God, because you are a deliverer, because you are a protector, God, we pray that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior King. Amen.